Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. This morning we're going to speak uh, from 2 Kings 5, chapter 5, verses 1 to 19. And the title I was giving was The Living, given was, the living God Heals. And uh, full disclosure, I claim no special ability to preach on this topic. Um, my wife is in A&E this morning. She's, she's fine, it's all right, no problem. But um, there's, a, there's kind of an irony to that. Um, so I, I don't have any special ability, I don't have any particular testimony uh, to share with you. Uh, I'm coming at you with what the Bible says, and we're going to start our journey of faith from there. I'm going to change my title um, and change the Living God Heals by Faith. And the reason I'm going to do that is, one, because the Bible's really clear that faith is what God is responding to when he heals. Um, And secondly, the story we're going to read through is just full of examples of people acting out their faith, and it builds into this picture that brings healing. Um, the other reason I want to talk about it this way is that faith is really often abused. The idea of God healing by faith is so often abused to hit people with a stick when they're not getting what they want. And I think that's an absolute tragedy that there are Christians, or sometimes sadly even ex-Christians, who have been led to believe that the reason they're sick is because they didn't believe hard enough. Because they couldn't drum up some strong inner feeling. And in this story, we're going to read what real faith is like. And it's not about drumming up artificial certainty. And it's not about feeling in a particularly strong way. So I hope you have a notebook, because I have 11 points to go through. And you better hope I'm quick, or we're all missing lunch. So let's read uh, 2 Kings 5, 1 to 19. It's going to be on the board. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favour because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valour, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots, and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a message to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out and stand over me and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hands over the place and cure the leper. 
Are not the Abana and the Farfa, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near to him and said, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down, he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And he came and stood before him. And he said, behold, I know that there is a God in all the earth, but in it, that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he, Elisha, said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he said to him, go in peace. So there's a lot in there, and we're going to go through it a bit by bit. So we're going to talk about the faith that brings healing. And the first thing about the faith that brings healing is that faith speaks. One of the most important characters in this story is in the very beginning, in verse 3. And it's the little girl from the land of Israel. If she hadn't spoken up, there would be no healing. We wouldn't know about Naaman. He would have died a leper in the land of Syria. Nothing in this story happens without the faith of a little girl. She's lost everything. And yet she's been taken from her home. Her country's been invaded. And yet rather than honouring the Syrian gods like everyone else in the family that she's working in, she stays loyal to Yahweh. She speaks up because of her faith. And this, is, this needs to be true for us as well. In 2 Corinthians 4.13, um, Paul says, It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. Since we have the same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. Where does your faith need to lead you to speak. The second thing we see from faith in this passage is that faith goes. Naaman hears the words of a little girl, a servant, through his wife. You might think that in this culture that wouldn't be taken with um, much seriousness. And yet, up he gets, and he goes to his king. If you have faith, you have to go. In Hebrews 11.8, we read that by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out, of the place, out to the place in which he was to receive. Where is your faith telling you to go? The third thing we see about faith from this passage, faith prepares. Naaman takes a lot of stuff. He takes 10 days' clothing. He takes so much silver and gold that he needs multiple donkeys to carry it. He also takes with him the paperwork required to cross the border into a foreign country. Some people think that faith is like happy-go-lucky, that the way you live by faith is by not making any preparations and seeing what happens. But that isn't how the faith works in this story. And I think sometimes when people do that, they're actually kind of using it as an excuse to get out of actually obeying the word of the Lord. 
we say, oh, I'll do this if when I go this first step, God does this back to me. Or I'll go to this place if God pays for the flight. You're just testing God. You're not being obedient through faith. Naaman doesn't know what's going to happen, although we read a bit later he has an expectation of what he thinks might happen. But he prepares because he doesn't want to be the thing that gets in the way of God performing a miracle. In Hebrews 11.7, we read about Noah, who by faith prepared an ark, and in doing so saved us all. In Genesis 22, which is a story we'll come back to later, Abraham is told to go and make an offering on the mountain. And he prepares. He collects enough wood. He straps it to a donkey. He takes a knife. He lights a fire before he sets off. If I was Abraham, I might use faith to avoid the task of sacrificing my son. I might say, well, I won't light a fire. And, you know, if God really wants me to sacrifice my son, he can give me a lightning bolt on the mountain. And yet Abraham's faith, he lights the fire before he leaves. He makes sure he is prepared to do the thing that his faith is telling him, God has told him to do. So what should you be preparing for in faith? If you're asking God for children... How can you prepare for children? What things do you think God might be asking you to do and how can you prepare for them? It might be making sure you have a big dining table or comfy chairs so that when God sends hurting people to you, you're able to bless them. Whatever it is, faith prepares. Number four, faith argues. We see that Naaman goes to his king And, I mean, I'm surprised that Naaman took the word of a servant girl seriously. I'm even more surprised that the king of Syria took the word of a servant girl seriously. And so my suspicion is is that we may be reading a summary of the conversation that happened between Naaman and the king rather than a word-for-word situation. Faith has to be prepared to argue. This is more explicit in Matthew 15. Uh, Jesus meets this... uh, a woman from, uh, also actually from Syria, because he's gone to Tyre and Sidon, and her daughter is demon-possessed. And he doesn't want to heal her. He doesn't want to heal the daughter. She says, oh, Jesus, heal my daughter. And he's like, no, you're not a Jew. I've come to the Jews. And then she argues with him. You know, she is what uh, a former prime minister, this was a quote from former prime minister, she was a bloody difficult woman. You know, the disciples come to Jesus and say, please do something about this woman because she won't stop shouting at us. She's making a nuisance of herself. And then when she comes to Jesus and Jesus says no, she even answers back to the God-man. But she doesn't argue that she somehow deserves a miracle. She argues in the same kind of metaphorical space that Jesus is arguing. So Jesus makes a point about dogs, and then she also makes a point about dogs. So she respects that the floor is the Lord's in the argument. And she also accepts what Jesus says about her position and what his role is. But her argument back is solely on the basis of her faith in God's goodness and God's power. Jesus says... um, you know, I, you, don't, you don't throw good things to dogs. And the woman answers back, oh, but even dogs can eat scraps from their master's table. And in doing so, she's saying, but Yahweh, you're so powerful that even the scraps from your table would be enough for me. And we read that in response to her faith, Jesus instantly heals her daughter. Faith argues. 
But as we went over a little bit there, faith also respects God's holiness. In this story, we see Naaman standing at the door. He doesn't enter Elisha's house. This is a man who recognises his uncleanness because he's a leper before the man of God. And he stands at the threshold rather than barging his way in. Like, this is a high-ranking commander of the land of Syria. Normally, when he wants something that's in someone's house, he would probably take a few soldiers and make sure the door was open. But in this case, he stands outside. Just as with the woman we talked about in the, in the previous story from Matthew, our faith needs to respect God's holiness. We don't have faith in the way that you might have faith in a supermarket fulfilling its prophecies, uh, prophecies, promises. When I buy my shopping from a supermarket, I have faith that they will deliver because one, I know I've paid for the food, and two, I know I'm very good at writing complaint letters. <laughs> That's not how faith in God works. We don't have faith in God on the basis of anything we've earned or done. We don't have faith in God because we trust a higher court to hold him to his promises. We have faith with him on the basis of his character and goodness alone. So in our faith with God and in our arguing and contending for things, we don't approach God as if we were in any way equals. When you speak to Yahweh, he owns the room that you're speaking in. He owns the air through which the sound that you're making is travelling. He owns the vocal cords that vibrate the air that make the sound. And he even owns the neurons that fire to make the vocal cords, make the vibrations that is the sound that he hears. Faith has to respect God's complete otherness and holiness. In Matthew 8... Uh, 5 to 13, particularly verse 8, we see another example of a man who again is from outside the covenant of God. He's a Roman centurion. And he comes to Jesus asking for healing for his daughter. And this is what he says to Jesus. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appearing to him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Oh, it's not his daughter, it's his servant. A different story. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. The faith of the centurion respected the holiness of Yahweh. Point six, faith that heals encourages other people's faith. When Naaman scoffed at Elisha's instruction, when his faith was weak, he almost turned back on the whole venture. He was going to go and wash in a different river. But his servants spoke up and begged him to reconsider. When his faith is weak, it gets upheld by the faith of those around him. Naaman's faith might be sidetracked because he didn't hear Elisha's full message because he doesn't say, when Naaman quotes it back, he doesn't say, wash in the Jordan, be healed, be cleaned. He just says, wash in the Jordan, be cleaned. And so he misses the bit about being healed and he seems rather upset that he would come all the way to this backwaters, washing this dirty river, just to be clean. 
But his servants remind him of what the actual promise of the God-man was. When they say, did he really say, there's like a little hint of the Eden story in this, because um, uh, Satan comes to Eve and says, did God really say this? And then Eve misquotes God and then lots of bad things follow. But just imagine if Adam had done what the servants had done in this story and had, while Eve's face was weak, upheld Eve and said, no, that's not what the Lord said. The Lord gave us all these other trees to eat from. Things could have been very, very different. And so in some ways, name and servants pass the test that Adam fails. In the Gospels, we have a story of a paralysed man and his friends have enough faith uh, to go on a roof to try and get him down to see Jesus. Presumably this involves some preparedness. There might have been a ladder. They might have needed spades to get through the roof or other tools. And in the Gospels, we specifically read that Jesus sees the faith of the man's friends and so heals the man. If you want God's healing, if you're arguing for it, if you're preparing for it, if you're contending for it in prayer, it's okay not to have the faith on your own. God has given you brothers and sisters and friends, and when your faith is weak, their faith can be enough. You might know someone who has been contending for healing for a long time and has since given up. It might be time to use your faith to uphold theirs. You might go to pray with them. You might just remind them of an instruction or a promise the Lord had given to them. Just like with Naaman, the faith um, and following that instruction might be really important because just like with Naaman, our next point, the faith that heals is obedient. Naaman does what the man of Yahweh told him to do. He washes in the Jordan seven times and he's healed. His faith made him well. Note Naaman's resistance. He thinks the task is too small to be worthy of doing. Couldn't he just have washed in a more local river? Many of us, when we think about it, when we receive an instruction from the Lord, might feel like we're more able to obey in big, impressive ways than in small acts of obedience. It's like we think by their size or their impressiveness, they're more or less important. But the faith that heals obeys whether the command is impressive or mundane. We might also resist obedience because we don't understand why the command might help. Naaman rightly thought, well, this river in Damascus is cleaner. If any river is going to heal me, it's going to be the cleaner river, not the muddy Jordan. It's like he's saying to God, well, how's that going to help? I have a better idea. We often resist obeying the Lord in the same way. Faith obeys Yahweh even when the command doesn't make much sense. In James 2, the author is talking about Abraham when he said, Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. Note here that Abraham's faith that saves us all is not complete until Abraham performs the action his faith is instructing him to do. Our faith is the same. It actually takes a very, very small amount of faith to choose to obey. 
And the faith grows when we act. Abraham had a small amount of faith in God's generosity based on the promises that God had given him. And he chose to act in obedience. To that, and that small faith, as he experiences the generosity of the Lord, becomes big faith. And the faith grows. When we read these Bible stories, I think it's really easy to forget that they're humans. We kind of read them as if they're characters we read in the book. You know, they're one-dimensional. Obviously, Abraham could do that because he had such great faith. But that's not what the scripture tells us. The scripture tells us that he made choices. And his faith grew through those choices. So in what ways do you need to convert your small faith into big faith through obedience? Point eight. Faith is thankful. God is generous. He loves to give freely. But it is, but it is also possible to insult generosity. Naaman returns and offers to pay for the gift of God as if he could somehow earn it. But God doesn't bargain with humans. He gives to humans, and humans respond with thankfulness. The right response to God's giving or healing is not payment, but gratitude. If you're trying to make deals with God, stop. That's not faith. And you might be insulting his generosity. Instead, practice thankfulness. As Philippians 4, 6 says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Point nine. Faith is loyal. In verse 17, Naaman pledges his loyalty to Yahweh. He's not going to sacrifice to any other gods anymore. Hosea 6.6 says, For I delight in loyalty, this is God speaking, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Naaman choosing not, don't underestimate the, the impact of the choice Naaman is making to choose not to sacrifice to foreign gods. He's going to go back to Syria. He's going to be surrounded by people who sacrifice to foreign gods. They're going to have a calendar with particular festivals where everyone celebrates. They're going to have behaviours that you look weird if you're not doing them. They may even have laws that make it illegal to not practice certain things. At this time, people believed that by not worshipping the right gods, you could bring tragedy on your whole community. Naaman's pledge to not sacrifice to any gods but Yahweh has a large risk of making him a complete social outcast. There are many things that might try to draw us away from loyalty to Yahweh. They may often claim not they may often seem to not even really be in conflict with our loyalty to him. But they can draw our attention. And as Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Cultures have gods. Our culture has gods. 
What things that are prevalent in our culture, what festivals or practices or celebrations might actually be calling into question your loyalty to Yahweh? Sometimes shunning those might cause a degree of consternation amongst your friends and colleagues. Our society now is increasingly post-Christian. We're living in a place more like Syria than like Israel. The things we celebrate are increasingly diametrically opposed, the complete opposite of what Yahweh would have us celebrate and the life he would have us lead. We need to consider carefully how we can act loyalty to God. We've recently had a whole month of flags. Is that a celebration that shows loyalty to Yahweh? It might have started as one for a particular reason, but I'd ask you to look at some of the parades and decide whether that's honouring to the Lord or even honouring to human dignity that the Lord cares so much about. Whenever you're presented with a choice, which one are you going to choose? The easy path or the path that is most loyal to the Lord? Number 10. Faith desires closeness. In verse 17, we have this little exchange where once Naaman has found out that he can't pay for God's blessing, he starts negotiating with Elisha for some dirt. And not just a little dirt, he wants whole don- I think two whole donkeys worth of mud. So what's going on here? Has Naaman gone full Jack Sparrow? You go to the next thing, yeah. See? It's real quick. So, if some of you have followed a particularly terrible court case over the last few months, and there was a... I don't think Amber Heard got the joke, but... Um, in this time that we're talking about, people saw the gods as having territory, and they had power. They have power over territory, particularly over temples and houses of worship. And it was really important which god's territory you were on. Um, in one Samuel, there's a story about how uh, the ark ends up in the temple of Dagon, and then the, the guy, the statue of Dagon, keeps falling over, and eventually he falls over, and his hands break on the threshold. And in 1 Samuel 5, we read, and that is why to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any other who enters Dagon's temple of Ashdod step on the threshold. And the reason is because the threshold is where Dagon's hands were broken. It's not Dagon's territory anymore. So the priests of Dagon daren't step on it because it's the territory of Yahweh. What's happening here in this story with the mud is kind of a similar idea. It's a bit like the Jack Sparrow thing. So in in the movie... Uh, Jack Sparrow is being chased by David Jones. David Jones is cursed not to be allowed to step on land. So Jack Sparrow has a jar of dirt, the idea being if he throws the dirt on the ground and stands on it, David Jones can't get to him because he's on ground where David Jones isn't allowed to tread. What Naaman's doing is the same. He wants to be Yahweh's man. And he's particularly concerned that his job means he has to go into the temple of a foreign god. So what he wants to be able to do is throw the dirt of Yahweh on the ground So he can go into the temple of the foreign god without leaving Yahweh's protection. He wants to be close to Yahweh. He doesn't want to leave Yahweh's territory. 
We see something similar in the ministry of Jesus. In Mark 5, 25 to 34, we read of the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. Uh, she comes to Jesus and we're told she thinks, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. He touches his, she touches his robe and she's instantly healed. And Jesus turns to her and says, your faith has healed you. But what was her faith? The faith was the action of reaching out to touch the robe of Jesus. Her drawing near to him is the faith that brought her healing. Healing faith desires closeness. Do you want to be close to God? Do you put time into your relationship with him? The final thing Jesus says to her, and he says similar things after many of his other miracles, is go in peace and be freed from your suffering, which brings us on to the 11th point. Faith, it's almost two, maybe it's 12. Faith, uh, 12 is a nicer number. Why didn't I do that? Uh, Faith brings peace with Yahweh because it is counted as righteousness. Naaman is super keen to know that Yahweh is going to be okay with him going into the temple of a foreign god and bowing because he has to support the, uh, the king as, as he does it. And somewhat surprisingly, Elisha says, go in peace, as if God is saying, yes, that's okay. It clearly is not a righteous act to bow in worship in the temple of a foreign god. So what is making Naaman be at peace with God? It's the faith that he has displayed by the request. This is not a member of God's covenant people. He's outside of Israel. But Naaman is pardoned for entering a foreign god's temple and he is told to leave in peace. So much of human history is about us trying to achieve peace with God. Different people at different times have tried all sorts of ways to find peace with God. Animal sacrifice, human sacrifice, ascetism, self-flagellation, military conquest, technological advancement, political power. But all fail and lead to incalculable human suffering. The Bible is clear. Even beyond healing, the way to peace with God is through faith. Luke 7, 36-50 has the story of a sinful woman that sneaks into a party that she wasn't invited to. And she starts washing Jesus' feet with her tears and she anoints him with perfume. And what does Jesus say to her? Your sins are forgiven, that's righteousness. Your faith has saved you, there's the faith. Go in peace. The woman who, the person who leaves that party at peace with God is not the religious man with the right theology. It's the woman who had the faith to break in and worship. And the faith wasn't just a feeling or a thought. It was an action. James 2, what we read a bit earlier, continues. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. 
Abraham's action from faith is credited to him as righteousness and he becomes a friend of God. Romans 5, therefore, you have been ju- therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If what you long for is peace with God, it just takes some faith. The living God heals by faith. We're saved by faith. We find peace with God by faith. And I hope that through this little study you'll see that when I say faith, I don't mean a strong feeling. I don't mean a certainty we're not really certain of. I don't mean believing harder in all these things that we're told are true. The faith I'm talking about is actions and choices. That faith speaks. It goes. It prepares. It argues. It respects God's holiness. It encourages It obeys, it thanks, it is loyal, it draws close to God and through it you will find peace with God and a righteousness that cannot be taken away from you. If you want stronger faith, act. If you want healing this morning and we believe that God wants to heal you and has the power to heal you, then please come to the front and someone will pray with you. We're not going to make bargains with God on your behalf. We're not going to try and drum up artificial certainties or give you strong feelings. We're just going to put whatever little faith we have into action and we're going to ask the good God to heal us. And if you know a person next to you that wants healing, maybe this is your time to be the friend whose faith makes the difference. So I would encourage them uh, to come up and get prayer. This is just an act of obedience.